Okay, before we get into the text, so we're looking at New Jerusalem this morning. Stuff's kind of happening in Jerusalem. Kind of amazing how that works, amen? Now, by the way, those of you who've signed up for the Israel trip, we're still planning on going. And the only way we don't go is if Israel says we can't come. Now, I've been there four times, and two of the times, people were worried about what was happening there. And let me tell you how many American Christian tourists have visited the Holy Land have died. Zero. And the good news is, if we do, we're just that much closer to heaven when we, when we go. Can I get amen to that? So if they tell us we can't go, we won't go. If Israel forbids it, but if Israel doesn't forbid it, we're planning on going. Each of you are individuals. You can make your own decisions if you're worried about it. But I will say this, the one time when people were most worried about going when we went, I took all four of my kids who at the time were 9, 10, 11, and 14, and we went on the trip, and it was the best trip we ever had because a lot of people stayed home. And so we'd go to, we'd go to like the tomb, and we're the only people there. And we go to Caesarea, we're the only people there. So it was an absolute blessing. And so those who are afraid can stay home, but we're going unless, unless they tell us we can't come. Amen? So you might think that's reckless. I just think it's faithful. God's, we don't, we don't, we, faith over fear. Can I get an amen to that? By the way, we need to pray for Jerusalem. We need to pray for the peace of Israel. The word of God commands us to do so. And when we get done with this morning's text, I think you'll have an even, even greater love and compassion and heart for Jerusalem. Amen? Let's open with a word of prayer and we'll dig into the word. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you, Lord. We ask, Lord, as we go to your word right now, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Give us ears to hear what you want to say to us. Lord, heaven is such a mystery to us. And I pray that we get a better glimpse, a better understanding of what heaven will be like. Lord, we know we won't fully comprehend it until we get there because we have finite minds and you're an infinite God. But Lord, I do pray that we would leave her encouraged and having a greater desire to go to heaven, to be more heavenly minded, so heavenly minded that we do some earthly good. So Lord, be our teacher this morning. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name. We pray all God's people said. So if you're new here or if you haven't been here for a while, Revelation is not that hard of a book to understand. The word revelation is apocalypsis, which means the unveiling. This whole book is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It's got its own outline in chapter one. It says the things which were, the things which are, and the things which are to come. We know in chapter one, we see Jesus in heaven. We see who, you know, and go back and look at that description, right? With hires of flames of fire and brass and right, and we see who he is. And it's a reminder to us that Jesus is no longer a baby in a manger and he's not a savior on a cross. He is seated at the right hand of the father ever making intercession for us. He's going to call us home. We're going to come back with him and rule and reign with him for a thousand years upon the earth. That's our savior. Amen. So the things which were Jesus in heaven, then chapters two and three, we have the what age? Church age. Church is mentioned 19 times in chapter 2 and chapter 3. That's the age we are in right now. At the end of chapter 3, John the Apostle, who God is giving the vision, is writing the book of Revelation. We know the Holy Spirit is the one who writes it, but used his hand. The word there in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, come up here. And the word come up there is harpazo, or in Latin, raptura, where we get the word for the rapture. And once he is in heaven, he has a heavenly perspective right? It's a vision in heaven. We do not see the church mentioned again until we come back with him at the end of the great tribulation. So that's why I, amongst and most evangelicals believe 
that the church will be raptured before the tribulation starts. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree with that, and it's not a salvation issue, and praise the Lord for that. But here's what I would say. The pre-trib, pre-millennial view is the only one where Jesus can come back today. And the Bible tells us that no man knows the day or the hour, and if it's mid-trib or post-trib, then you can start counting the days, and you would know when he's coming back. Now, chapter 4 to chapter 20, as we've looked at that, we saw the seven years of great tribulation. We saw the seal judgments, the bowl judgments, the trumpet judgments. And now we got to the very end of the book. And so here we are in chapter 21. If you're new to Calvary Chapel, we, just, we started in Matthew chapter 1 on Sundays. And we went right through the Bible. So it took us 10 and a half years to get through the New Testament. And then we started in, in, in uh, Genesis on Thursday nights. We just finished Second Chronicles on Thursday. So what book are we going to be in this Thursday? Ezra. Somebody knows their Bible. Praise the Lord. So First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, and Proverbs. Amen? So we're going to be in Ezra. So if you've thought about coming on Thursdays, come this Thursday. We'll feed you some tacos. We'll feed you the Word of God. And we are moving back into the, uh, because it's starting to get cool at night, we're going to move back into the cafeteria on Thursday nights. Hopefully be a little more comfortable. We're starting a new book of the Bible. Now, as we come to the end of the text, here's what we've seen the last few weeks. We saw the second coming. Now, when Jesus came into Jerusalem the first time, he was riding a donkey, an animal of peace. When he comes back the second time, he's going to be riding a white horse. We are going to be behind the Lord, and the world is going to turn. The Antichrist and his followers are going to turn to fight the Lord, and we are, of course, going to have victory. At the end of that tribulation, that great tribulation, at the second coming of Christ, we then enter what is called the millennial kingdom. That's a literal, we will rule and reign with the Lord for a thousand years upon the earth, this earth, for a thousand years upon the earth with Jesus on the throne, with God ruling and reigning. No other politicians, no other any of it. Now at the end of the thousand year reign, as we are ruling and reigning with the Lord, there will be those who get through the tribulation who are living lives like we live now. They will be having children and getting married and the whole thing. We will be ruling and reigning over them. At the end of a thousand years, at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, Satan was, was thrown into the abyss and he was, he was chained. At the end of the thousand years, he's going to be let loose. He's going to come and many people who have lived during that thousand years who were, are not in their glorified bodies, haven't been to heaven and come back like we did, they will have a choice to make, and many will choose to follow Satan. We also saw the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20. The great white throne judgment is really more of a sentencing than a judgment because a judgment will have already been made. If you are at the great white throne judgment, you are going to the lake of fire. So the great white throne judgment will be when unbelievers who rejected the Lord, I don't know how it will play out exactly, but the Lord could show them, here's all the opportunities you had to be saved, Here's the life that you chose to live. You rejected me. And well, guys, we will spend eternity with the one that we follow in this life. If you follow the Lord, you'll spend eternity with the Lord. If you're following yourself or the world, you'll spend eternity again alone, separated from God. Now, chapter 21 and 22, uh, this is where the forever part starts. So last week, if you were here, I tell the message, heaven is better. And... I gave us some glimpses into heaven, why we should be focused on heaven. It's been said, I said it last week, people say that some people are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. I think it's just the opposite. 
I think people are so earthly minded to know heavenly good. When our focus is on the Lord, it changes the way we live. Here are some of the things we learned about heaven last week. That God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth. We'll see more of that today. That Almighty God will be dwelling with us in the new Jerusalem, in the holy city. What makes it holy? He's there. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, and no more pain. He will make all things new. And what will keep you from heaven? Rejecting the work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. So this morning, I titled the message. Now, usually my outlines, this is a little different than most of the outlines I do. Usually the outlines I do are more applicational. And what I mean by that is, I'll take stuff out of the verse, I'll put something that applies to your life that you can take home with you. I think because so many people are so confused about heaven, and so few messages are taught about heaven, that I'm really just giving an applicational overline, I mean, an observational outline, because what I want us all to see, by the time we leave here in 45 minutes or so, that I want to know a little bit better what heaven looks like. I want to know what's taking place there. I want to know why it is the way that it is. So here's what we're going to If you have the out, your outline, grab it. First of all, we're going to see the new Jerusalem. So it's not going to be the Jerusalem that's here. It's not God fixing up the Jerusalem that's here. It's not even the Jerusalem of the millennial kingdom. It's going to be a whole new city. And it's literally going to be where we're going to live for, the re- for all of eternity. It's going to be heaven. Now, the citizens of the eternal city, who will live in the new Jerusalem, the eternal city, will see that it's the bride, the lamb's wife. Who's the bride? Who's that? us. We are the bride of Christ, and he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so when you give your life to Jesus, you're married to the Lord. And so he is the groom, we are the bride, we are married to the Lord. By the way, we're we're the bride of Christ now, we're all works in progress. Number two, we're going to see the foundation for for the eternal city. What is it built upon, and why is it there? The throne of Almighty God is there. 12 gates, 12 angels. We're going to see the 12 tribes of Israel. We're going to see the 12 apostles whose names are on the foundations. And what I love about that is heaven is going to remember and acknowledge that both the old covenant and the new covenant brought people to heaven. Because we're going to see the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, God's chosen people. And those people you know, Abraham had faith and he was saved. They made the sacrifices. They were living lives pointing to the coming Messiah without fully grasping it. But through the old covenant, pointing to the one who's coming by their faith and the one who was coming, they are saved. And when Jesus died on the cross, he delivered them from paradise and brought them into heaven. And the same is true for the church. So the old covenant and the new covenant the Old Testament and the New Testament are all, st- the Old Covenant's not valid anymore. It's been replaced by the New Covenant, but people were saved in the Old Covenant. The Old Testament and the New Testament, all of it is the Word of God. Amen? And if you look in the Old Testament, you will see Jesus on every page. So I know people that say, we don't need to read the Old Testament. Well, if you don't, you're getting half the message. Amen? So I want to encourage you to read it all. Then we're going to see the dimensions of the eternal city. We're going to see the size of it and kind of, and again, it's, gonna, it's like this big cube, and it's 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, and 1,500 miles high. Uh, a lot of people believe when we get to heaven, we have glorified bodies, that we won't be limited to uh, walking on the earth, that we'll probably be able to fly and move around, because again, it's, gonna, it's talking about inhabiting that entire cube, and you don't inhabit 1,500 miles up unless you can move there. I don't know the answer to that, but I know that God has a plan. So the new Jerusalem will literally be from like 
I, I put in Thousand Oaks and I said 1,500 miles and it comes to Dallas, Texas. So the size of New Jerusalem, those of you going to Israel, you're going to see the Jerusalem. You can walk around the whole thing in about an hour. Okay, it's not very big. You know, the, the city itself. But the New Jerusalem, again, will, of course, be much larger. Then we're going to see the beauty of the eternal city. When Jesus ascended into heaven, what did he say? I go to what? Prepare a place for you. So in six days, he created the heavens and the earth. And he has spent 2,000 years preparing heaven for us. How amazing is heaven going to be? Now, John gets a glimpse of it. And he starts talking about all these precious stones and the beauty of all of them. And we know that the Lord's presence will be there. And it's the last point is he's going to be the light. There's not going to be any sun or moon in heaven. At least there's not going to be a need for one. Why? Because the Lord is going to illuminate heaven. He is the light of the world. Amen? And you know what's amazing is all these precious stones, most of them are translucent, which means light shines through them. And so heaven's just going to blow our minds. No matter how great you think it's going to be, it's going to be greater than that. John gets a glimpse of it, and he starts to go, man, all these precious stones and this radiating light. And again, he's trying to describe the indescribable, but at least we have a little bit of understanding of what that is. And then finally, finally the glory of the eternal city. And again, there'll be no temple there. We won't need a temple. Why? Because God's going to be there. Why, is the temple, why does the temple exist? Let me tell you why. Because it's the place where God's presence dwelt. And it was the place where sacrifices were made so people could draw near to the Lord. So the temple, if you were here for 2 Chronicles 36 on Thursday, got destroyed. And the Lord allowed it because the people had stopped worshiping him. They rebelled against God. His presence no longer remained. If God's presence isn't in the temple, it's just a building. And if God's presence isn't in a church, it's just a building. Amen? We go and visit old churches sometimes. You go to cities, you know, especially in foreign countries, you walk into this ornate building and people are kind of in awe of it. And I'm not that in awe of it. Because when I walk in, I'm like, wow, this is a really pretty monument to what once was. Amen? And it's a memorial to what once took place here. And now it's nothing more than a museum. Because if the Holy Spirit isn't there, it's not the church. Amen? Because the church isn't a building, it's the people. Amen? And so the Lord is going to be there in all of his glory, so we don't need the temple. The city will need no sun or moon. The Lord is the everlasting light of heaven. There's no darkness in heaven. I believe, I've, some of you are going to be bummed about this. I don't think we ever sleep in heaven. Some of you are like, dude, that's my jam right there. I love me some naps. You're not going to be tired in heaven because you're not going to be dragging these dead carcasses around anymore. Amen. We're going to have new bodies, and we're going to be in the presence of Almighty God, and there, there will never be darkness, because in Him there is no darkness of all at all. And by the way, light and darkness cannot coexist, and He is the light. Amen? Who's darkness? Satan's darkness. And He will be cast into the outer darkness, and we will be living in the eternal light. So let's begin there. Picking up at verse 9, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly and eternal city, we're first going to see the citizens of the eternal city. And it says there in verse 9, that one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. So one of these angels 
Whenever you see him say then, then one, so he's got, this is like a new vision coming, okay? He's been focused on one thing, and now here's something new that God is showing him. And this angel shows up, and it's one of the angels that helped pour out the bold judgments. So this is an angel that was active, took an active role in the righteous judgment of God, but now he's going to take an active role in showing uh, John the heavenly reward that awaits those who love the Lord. And so he both, both is used in judgment, and he's also going to be used in revealing the blessings that are to come. Angels play a significant role in the book of Revelation, and this particular angel was involved, again, both in tribulation judgments, the bowl, the, the pouring out of God's wrath, but also used by God to show him the blessings that were to come. Now, while the new Jerusalem is a literal heavenly city, it's referred to as the Lamb's wife because it's the place where God's people, his bride, are gathered. What's going to make heaven heaven? God is there. Amen? But what also makes heaven heaven, heaven is his people are there. His children, his bride, we are there. And so he's letting them know, look, this is where God's people are going. This is where his bride will spend eternity. This is where the lamb's wife, who's the lamb? Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Amen? And so what makes the city special is that it, to God is that his bride is there. What makes the city special to us is because God is there. Amen? That's what makes it special. There's no wedding with only a groom, and there's no wedding with only a bride. And so we are going to come together, and again, he's almighty God. The Bible tells us clearly that we are his treasured possession. He proved it when he sent his son to suffer and die. He'd rather die on a cross than live without you. That's the God that we serve. And so for him to have all of his children and his bride, however you want to refer to us, we're all with him, and we're going to be with him for all eternity, and it's going to be in a place where there's no more death, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more pain, no more sin, no more politics. Thank you, Jesus. Amen? No more social media. No more internet. No more drugs. No more alcohol. No more, no more illnesses. No more cancer. No more pain. No more suffering. And guys, we're going to be in the presence of Almighty God. We're going to see Him face to face. And guess what? We're never, ever, ever going to leave. And we're going to be there with Him for all eternity. Praise the Lord for that. Amen? And that's why you can't threaten me with heaven. Amen? So we're going to look at depth this morning at almost indescribable beauty of this heavenly city. It's God's very presence that will be the true source of its beauty and glory. And we are the bride of Christ, the Lamb's wife. Verse 10, and it says, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. So he's going to see, he gets a vision of seeing this new Jerusalem coming and landing in place. Now, we talked about it last week, there's a new heavens and a new earth. The heavens doesn't talk about heaven where God dwells in a sense. It speaks of the heavens above us, the sky above us. There's a new heavens and a new earth that are being created. And in the midst of that, there will be a new Jerusalem. So the Holy Spirit transports John to a great and high mountain, a place with a perfect view to see the great city descending out of heaven from God. In Revelation 21 verse 2 last week, it said, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned 
for her husband. So new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. He's not just fixing that which is broken. He's creating something new. Now, what does that remind me of? God doesn't just take us, the ones who are broken, and just fix us up. He makes us new creations in him. Amen? He doesn't just take our mess and kind of wash us off. The old person we were dies, and we become a new creation in Christ. And the same is going to happen with the new heaven. He's not going to just fix up the old Jerusalem. He's not going to fix up the old earth. He's going to create a new heavens, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. In Hebrews 11.10, it says, whose architect and builder is God. Again, he's going to make all things new. Just as when we were born again and we became a part of the bride, he doesn't just clean us up. Now, the, one of the words that I like here that he, use, he uses in verse 10, he actually refers to it back in verse 2, is she's, that the bride is adorned for her husband. We'll see it again later on, or I think it's verse 18. And the word adorned there, there's nothing, to me, appropriately enough, I don't think there's anything, Pastor Dave's opinion, I don't think there's anything more beautiful on this planet than a bride on her wedding day. And I've been blessed to, to be a part of or officiate hundreds of weddings. And there's few moments more awesome than seeing that bride come out from behind those doors and I get to look at the groom as, the, as he's welling up and if he's not, he needs to get saved. So, he, so he's looking out and he sees this woman and it's a picture of Christ in the church, right? Because here comes this bride clothed in white. And again, it's a picture of us. We're clothed in white because of what Jesus did on the cross. And so he's talking about us being his bride. We're adorned. He adorns us. He prepares us. The funny part of, about the word adorned, it's where do we get the Greek word for makeup or cosmetics? We're adorned. If the barn needs painting, paint it. Amen? So while, so while we are his bride right now, we're justified. We're all still works in progress. We're being adorned for the Lord. We're, we're works in progress. He's sanctifying us. He's molding us more into his image. And he's doing a work in our lives. This is in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing by the water of the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price for us to go to heaven. He paid the price for our sins, but he didn't stop there. He continues to do a work in us preparing us for the day when we will see him face to face. We're all works in progress. Can I get an amen to that? Aren't you glad? I'm glad this isn't the finished product. I wouldn't be very happy. So it's important for us, as God's doing this work in us, just quickly, how do, how do we get prepared? How, do we, how are we being sanctified? What are the main things? You know, the Bible says in 1 Peter, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel, but rather let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves. He's saying, look, we should be more than just believers on the outside. It should change on how we live on the inside. Amen. And it should be adorning us and changing us, our priorities, our passion. And how does that happen? By spending time in the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by? Okay, so what does the Word do? It convicts us. It, 
it uh, molds us more to the image of our Savior. It calls us unto obedience. And guys, it's not enough to read it. We need to obey it and respond to it. So the bride is being adorned in preparation for that day. Verse 11, point number two here, the foundation of the eternal city. So what is the eternal city built on? Well, first and foremost, the answer is always Almighty God. But part of the foundation are going to be things that he used to make us the church, to have us become believers and become his bride. Look what it says in verse 11. It says there, having the glory of God, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. And the names written on them were the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. So notice it says there, speaking of the city, her light is like a most precious stone, a jasper stone, clear as crystal, having the glory of God as the key. The most distinguishing characteristic of the capital city of eternity is that the throne of the eternal God is there. If God isn't there, it's not heaven. If God's presence isn't there, we're all hopeless. So the main, re- the main thing, we're, why are we, what's the greatest thing about heaven? God's there. Right now we see him in a mirror dimly. We get a glimpse of who he is, kind of. But when we get to heaven, we're going to see him for who he is in all of his glory. And no matter how great you think he is, he's going to be far greater than that. Amen? No one is going to be disappointed when they get to heaven. No one's going to go, that was going to be bigger. No, that's not going to happen. No one's going to be looking for the streets of gold because in heaven, we'll see later, gold is asphalt. Amen? So notice it says her light was like. So these stones are, have various colors, and we think the idea is that the image John is painting of translucent, shining, glowing, multicolored objects, most of the walls described as being jasper, which is a clear clearest crystal, kind of like a diamond. And so God is there, but his light is illuminating out and it's shining through, again, from John's perspective, these beautiful colors that make everything shine brightly. In verse 12 there, it says, he also had great and high wall with 12 gates. Why do you need a wall? Well, we don't need a wall to keep the enemies out because they're already gone. When we get to heaven, there's no enemies left. You're either in heaven with the Lord or you're in the lake of fire separated from God for all eternity. And you're going to be with the one that you follow. But the great and high wall gives definition and parameter. Just give us an idea of what heaven is, how it's bound up. Now, again, God's greater than this. And any, any explanation we try to make will, will not do it justice. But it won't just be... Look, it's, it's going to give us something that, that is physical, And do I believe heaven will be physical? I do. I could be wrong. Pastor Dave's opinion. I think it's going to be physical. I think I'm going to be able to just go up and hug you. And now we're going to have perfect bodies, heavenly bodies that will never die, that will never fade. I'll have hair. Thank you, Jesus. So all that stuff that when we get to heaven, but I still believe that we will recognize each other. The Bible says we we will know as we are known. We'll recognize each other. We'll remember each other. We'll be able to physically greet each other. So while heaven, so a lot of people visualize heaven. I said this last week, like you're on some cloud floating around with a harp and you're, you know, you're like a disembodied spirit. That's not in the Bible. We get new bodies, new heaven, new earth. And it's going to be, I believe, physical that way. While different than our current environment, we will still have a clear level of physicality. We will 
have glorified bodies, but bodies nonetheless. Notice he says 12 gates, 12 angels, 12 tribes. So there will be gates in the walls of the new Jerusalem, which is heaven. And on those gates will be angels at each gate. We will see in a few verses that these this gates are made out of one pearl, each gate. That's where you get the term pearly gates. Now, when you see pearly gates in cartoons, they always got St. Peter there deciding who's getting in, who's getting out. Well, St. Peter ain't out of the gates, the angels are. And by if you get to the gate, you're going in. Can I get an amen to that? Because it's not a gate with a lock on it. The price has been paid. Jesus paid the price for us. Those who don't reject the Lord will have already been set aside at the great white throne judgment. They'll never even get a glimpse of heaven, and we will enter in. Now, it is interesting that there's 12 gates, 12 angels, but notice it has the names of the 12 tribes. Now, there's a lot of people that will teach, uh, and I'm not going to try to not get too theological, but they, they teach what is called replacement theology. And replacement theology is that Israel is no longer God's chosen people, that Christians are. Now, we are called by God and gifted by God, but is God done with Israel? What's the answer? He's not making a new Santa Cruz or a new Thousand Oaks. It's a new Jerusalem. Amen? Why is that? Because God, they, are, they were God's chosen people. Let me ask you a question. Who were the first believers? What were they? They were all what? Jews. Jews. Who, who did God use to write the Bible? Who, our Messiah, Jesus, came as a what? Okay. So the old covenant, while we are no longer under the old covenant, because it was always pointing to one who was coming, the Old Testament... And the Old Covenant were tools that God used and is using now with the Old Testament for all eternity. He's using those things. And so the names of the 12 tribes are going to be on the gates of heaven, which tells me, and I, this is why I also believe that during the Great Tribulation, we're going to see more Jewish people come to Christ at any time in human history. I believe it'll be millions because their eyes will be open when they recognize the Antichrist, the abomination and desolation. They're going to recognize that this guy's not it, and they're going to repent, and they're going to get right with God. We already know there's going to be 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams going around sharing Jesus during the Great Tribulation. So God is for Israel. We're for Israel because God's for Israel. Amen? I'm pro-Israel because God's pro-Israel. And anybody fights against, if God is for us, who can be against us? God says he blesses those who bless Israel and what? Curses those who curse Israel. So I'm as pro-Israel as they get. And you know what? We as a nation are getting, we used to be their greatest ally and we're getting further away from that. Take heed lest you fall. Amen. So the 12 angels at the gate, again, that's pearly gate, it's not Peter. Now notice what it says here. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. I love the Old Testament for many, many reasons. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible is a chapter you may have read, blown through, skimmed over and never thought about again. In Numbers chapter two, it tells us how the 12 tribes march through the wilderness. And it gives you these, and perpendicular to the tabernacle, which is at the center, these three tribes went out to the east side, and it says, and these three tribes went to this side, and then these three tribes went to this side, and, then the, and you're reading all this going, why am I reading this? By the way, if it's in the Bible, it's in the Bible for a reason, amen? It's not just instructions for an erector set. Why is it in there? Well, when you read it, the east and the west sides both have about the same amount of people. The north side has the smallest amount and the south side has the largest amount. And when you look at how they perpendicular to the tabernacle and did not go outside of it, 
When you put it all together and you look down from heaven, as they were marching through the wilderness, they were marching in the shape of a cross. So even all the way back in the days of wandering in the wilderness, Almighty God sees the tabernacle where his glory dwells in the center, where they make sacrifices, and they're marching in the shape of a cross. And guess what? It's amazing to me that here we have those same tribes in the same directions at the same time. Because again, even though it was, just, it was looking down at the cross, he was also looking down at the heavenly future. Guys, the Bible rocks. Amen? The number 12 is prominent in the New Jerusalem. 12 gates, 12 angels, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 foundation stones, 12 apostles, 12,000 furlongs in length, 12 times 12 cubits are the size of the walls, 12 kinds of fruit we'll see in chapter 22. What does it all mean? I could give you 12 reasons, but maybe not. But Jesus, Jesus entered the temple. How old was he? He's 12. How many spies went to the land of promise? Solomon appointed 12 governors. There were 12 priests chosen when Israel would turn from captivity uh, from Babylon. 12 is a number. I, I looked this up, and, and most scholars believe that it's a number that speaks of authority and, and completeness. So this is a finishing of what's going on. So here we have the 12 gates reminding us of Israel and the old covenant and those who were brought through it. Verse 14 says, Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the what? The 12 what? Okay, so if the 12 tribes are the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, what would the 12 apostles be a picture of? The New Covenant and the New Testament. Amen? So we have, remembering the 12 tribes of Israel that, again, God used, and through them would come the Messiah. And again, most of the apostles outside of Luke were all Jews themselves. But we see that God is using them as a part of the new covenant. Who did God use to write the New Testament? The apostles. Amen? Use the apostles. Now, it says there there's 12 apostles. The names are the 12 apostles. There's some debate about who these are. Is Judas, you think Judas on that list? Okay, no. So who replaces Judas? You guys are taught well. Yeah. So now Matthias. So here's what happens. When they get rid of Judas, they all get together. When Judas is gone, he hangs himself. He's a traitor. So when he's gone, they, the, the other apostles come together and they cast lots for who should take the place among the 120 uh, disciples. And it falls on Matthias. And a lot of people say, well, that's the 12th apostle. Except I never see his name again anywhere in the Bible. Now, the Paul is referred to as the what, Paul? The Apostle Paul. And he wrote, God used him, just his hand, but the Holy Spirit wrote it, most of the New Testament, or a good majority of the New Testament. God used him mightily. He planted churches. To me, he's the greatest example of a Christian man anywhere in the Bible, the Apostle Paul. So the 12 names, again, we'll find it when we get there. I don't think it's Matthias. I don't. I think it's Paul. And here's what I also believe. There aren't any more apostles. The names of the what apostles? 12 apostles? How, does it say uh, 12 of the apostles? It says the 12 apostles. So I always get a little skittish by the way people title themselves. And people will send me stuff, and I'm, I'm the apostle. Uh, I don't think so. First of all, one of, the, one of the requirements to be an apostle, you must have seen the risen and living, living Savior. And people say, well, Paul didn't see him. Yes, he did. Road to Damascus. Amen. 
He had a head-on collision with the Lord. And so now an apostle can be a sent one. Uh, today we could say a missionary or an ambassador for the Lord. And I have no problem with that. But what I do have a problem with is someone putting themselves in a place of apostolic authority that they don't... By the way, your name is not going to be on the foundation whether you think you're an apostle or not. Amen? And God's not going to use you to write any books in the Bible. Can I get an amen to that? And so these are the 12 apostles. And I, I get leery when somebody will say, I'm Apostle John, I'm a bishop, I'm an apostle, I'm a reverend. I'm a... Get over yourself, bro. You're a sinner saved by grace like the rest of us. Can I get an amen to that? A bunch of titles in front. I know people don't know me when I get mail that says reverend. They don't re revere me. We revere God. Can I get amen to that? It says this in Ephesians 2. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So what was the foundation for the Christian faith? God used the apostles and the prophets, and of course, Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. Without him, the whole building crumbles. So here we have the foundation of the new Jerusalem in heaven, and on the foundation are the names of the 12 apostles, going, just showing us again how God used them to bring about his perfect will upon the earth, to bring the word of God into, you know, to write the word of God, to spread the gospel, and you know what? Praise God for the 12 apostles. Now, do we worship them? What's the answer? Do we pray to them? What's the answer? Are they sinners saved by grace like the rest of us? Yes, they are. They were used mightily by God. Mary, same thing. Was Mary used mightily by God? What's the answer? Blessed among women. We pray to Mary. We worship Mary. No. Praise God for Mary. We've got two extremes. We don't, we don't want to cease to praise God for her, but if anybody could be grieved in heaven, it would be Mary. If you're praying to her, she'd tell you to knock it off, so, it's not, so knock it off. Amen. We pray to the Father in the name of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? So, apostle, again, can also be a, an ambassador, a delegate, a messenger, one sent forth with orders. We still have messengers. We still have missionaries, but we don't have these type of apostles, apostles themselves, who the foundation of Christianity was built on. And again, the, but again, their foundation means nothing without Jesus. He's the chief cornerstone. They can build any foundation they want. You remove Jesus, it all crumbles. That's why we don't put our faith in Peter. We don't put our faith in Paul. We don't put our faith in any of the apostles. Amen? Our faith is in Christ alone. So I do believe that Paul's name will be the 12th one on the foundation. So point number two there, the foundation of the eternal city. And again, we'll see that within it are the, the 12 tribes of Israel and also the 12 foundation stones of the apostles, founded, of course, on the glory of God. And the dimensions of the city, so how big is it going to be? And again, this is all estimated, uh, kind of a guess to some degree. Look what it says in verse 15. And he talked with me, this is the angel talking to John, had a good reed to measure, a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its walls. So he sees the city come down and he's looking at it, the angel gets out and starts measuring it giving them an idea of the size of it. It's in the Bible for a reason. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is great, as great in its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. So it's 12,000 furlongs, which is about 1,500 miles. If you want to get technical, I think it's 1,489 miles, something like that. So 1,500 miles 
wide, 1,500 miles that way, and 1,500 miles straight up. So again, it looks like it's this big cube. Now, what's amazing about that, I'm a math guy, so uh, it give, that will give you about 3.3 billion cubic miles of space. If you take a rough number of all the people who've ever lived and multiply it by about 25%, which I think is hopeful, of number of people that would be in heaven, based on that, we'd all have about 150 acres to live on individually. Okay, I'm just giving you an idea about the space. So it's not going to be too small. If you're saying, oh, I thought heaven would be forever. Well, again, God can do whatever he wants, but he gives us this description for a reason. And I actually think it's better that we're all, that we're not, you know, that I'm not 47,000 light years away from everybody else. Can I get an amen to that? Heaven is we want to be near to the Lord. We want to be in the presence of God and we want to be around God's people. Amen? And so we see here that when he creates heaven, it does have some physical things about it and praise God for that just illustrates the amount of room in the new Jerusalem, and again, plenty of room for all believers. Then it says there in verse 17, that he measured its wall, 140 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is its angle, so angel. So what it's saying here is, he's talking about really the top of the wall, and the top of the wall will be about 216 feet wide. So he's on the top of the wall, about 216 feet wide, so you've got a wall around it, you've got a top of the wall around it, and then you see that it goes up 1,500 miles in each direction, and that's a description of the new Jerusalem. So we see there that God, is our God a God of order? What's the answer? Yes. He's a God of order. He knows where every single, he put the, every star in the sky, where it is. By the way, one of the many things that I love, the Bible says that his thoughts for you outnumber the sand on the seashore. Do you know if you took a one-foot bucket of sand and you counted all of the, he would have to be thinking about you just to fulfill one bucket of sand. He'd have to be thinking about you every seven seconds for a trillion years. So how much is he thinking about you when it's all the sand? Can I get an amen to that? So you are always on his mind. His thoughts are always on you. He loves you. So when we go to heaven, he's going to want us near him and we, we get to be near him. Praise the Lord. Amen? So when you look at the size and you go, well, that's just kind of weird. That's weirding me out, man. I thought heaven was just bigger. I'm glad that it's what God made it because God's a God of order and God knows what he's doing. Can I get amen to that? And we won't be disappointed when we get there. Let's talk about the beauty of this structure. Notice it says in verse 18, it says, the construction of its wall was of jasper and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second was sapphire, the third was clanadone, the fourth was emerald, the fifth was sedonyx, the sixth uh, sardis, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chophasaz, the eleventh jacinth, and the ninth amethyst. Now, all these beautiful stones, what most people believe when they go look at them, almost all of them are what we will call translucent. So they're, they're bright in color, but light can shine through them. They're not like rocks, right? They're like precious stones. And so when we look at the beauty of 
what will be in the new Jerusalem, that the light of God will be shining through these beautiful stones that will bring great reflections of beautiful color. How many guys have seen an amazing sunset? So that's a sunset on a fallen world. What do you think heaven's going to look like? What do you think the colors are going to be like? What do you think? How, how amazing? And by the way, those are sunsets, S-U-N sets. We're going to see the almighty God, glory of God, the light of God shining through stones that he has created to illuminate his glory in every color. And it's going to blow doors on anything we've ever seen. Amen? I look forward to that. So all these beautiful colors. Now, what's interesting is in the Bible, notice again how many stones. There's 12. You know where else we saw 12 stones? On the priest, high priest's breastplate. And it had 12 stones. And if you take each of these stones, and again, written in Hebrew, now these are written in Greek, almost all of these match up, and it could be that all 12 of them do. And it just makes sense to me that they all do. So what that means is the high priest in the old covenant had this breastplate with 12 stones, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they were all in these beautiful colors. And it wouldn't surprise me that the high priest, who's a picture of the great high priest to come, who is Jesus Christ, would be wearing the colors of the stones that will be in heaven for those who surrender their lives to the great high priest. Amen? And so we see the only time we see stones in that number and kind of in this variety, there's, there's three that are questionable as to whether or not they match. Nine of them are the exact same ones, but at the same time, they're written in different languages. So it could be that all 12 of them match. Again, is our God a God of order? When he's doing stuff all the way back here with the high priest thousands of years earlier, and it's already a picture, picture of heaven. Our God is so far beyond our capability to understand Guys, wearing a bit of heaven, called to reflect it to the world. And again, Jesus is our great high priest, our one and only intercessor, seated at the right hand of the Father. You know what the Bible tells us? That we are all priests. Did you know that? We're all priests. Now, what does a priest do? He intercedes with God on behalf of the people and, and ministers to the people on behalf of God. So a priest is an intercessor, and you know, it's an intercessory place where the priests in the Old Covenant, they made sacrifices for the people to, with God, and then they would come and teach the Word of God to the people. And so as believers, that's what we do. We intercede with the world with God. We pray for people. We intercede for people. We come to the throne of grace for those who don't know the Lord and those that do. But then we are also called by God to not just be ones who intercede with Him, but people that minister to the world, we're called to make disciples. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he said, go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And God has called all of us to not only cry out to the Lord and intercede and have a relationship with him, but also to be tools in his hands that minister to the world. To representing the Lord to the world and interceding on behalf of the world with the Lord, while the high priest had heavenly gems on his heart, we as believers have something better. What do we have? The Holy Spirit. In the Old Covenant, the Lord would give the Holy Spirit to people for a period of time for a specific reason. You see David crying out, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. As believers, when you get saved, the Holy Spirit goes from being with you to being in you. And he is your down payment on heaven, it says in Ephesians chapter 1. 
So the down payment on heaven, the reason we know we're going to heaven is because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. But he will never leave us nor forsake us. And so as the priest was interceding on their behalf, the thing that we have that allows us to be used by God in even a more mighty way in my mind than the Old Testament high priest is because we have the spirit of the living God dwelling within us who chooses to speak through us and chooses to gift us so we can minister to other people. Amen? So getting saved isn't just to get out of hell free card and putting it in your wallet and living like the world. God has a calling upon our lives. He wants to use us for his kingdom and for his glory. Look at verse 21. Verse, uh, yeah, God, the and then it says there, the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each individual gate of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. It is interesting that you read through this whole text and the, people, the thing that sticks out to most people are gold streets and pearl gates. And a lot of that is because we're enamored with you know, richness. We're enamored with things like that. Now, each of those gates is made out of one pearl. I'd like to see the size of that oyster. But here's the thing. God can create pearls without oysters. Can I get an amen? Isn't it interesting the world, there's a parable called the pearl of great price where uh, a man goes and sells all he has to buy one plot of land just because he knows there's one pearl there. And do you know that that entire parable is about what Jesus did so he could acquire you? So we are the pearl, we are the pearl of great price to the Lord. He was willing to die so that we, he could have us and we could have him. And so it's interesting to me that the gates that enter into heaven are made out of pearls. And guess what? All who get there are going to be able to enter in. The streets are going to be made of gold. And again, you heard the old joke where a guy saves all his stuff and asks God when he goes to heaven, could he take something with him? And he takes a bunch, you know, boxes of gold he's been saving his whole life. And then an angel comes out and says to him, dude, why'd you bring that? That's asphalt. Amen. In heaven, the things that we, pres- that we treasure here are going to be common and mundane. Amen? The things that we think are so important here, that's why we need to have a heavenly perspective. Remember that next time, you know, something, you know, get, you get a dent in your gold watch. Just remember, it's just asphalt. Don't worry about it. Finally, the glory of the eternal city. What makes heaven so glorious? Look at verse 22. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So who is the temple in heaven? There's no temple. We don't need it. The temple is where the presence of God would dwell. Well, now the presence of God is everywhere. But notice that it says it's God Almighty and the what? Who's the lamb? Lamb of God. So here we have that he is the temple. His presence, his glory is enough. We don't need a building. We don't need any more sacrifices. We don't need any more rituals. It's all finished. It's paid in full. Jesus said it on the cross. It's done. It's finished. And when we get to heaven, just being in his presence is going to be enough. And his presence will be everywhere. Look, it says the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God illuminated it. The lamb is its light. Who's the lamb again? So who lights up heaven? Praise the Lord. Amen. He's the light of the world. Muhammad's not lighting up anything. Amen. Buddha, lighten up nothing. I, he still doesn't eat an orange that people dropped in his lap at the Chinese restaurant last time I was there. still sitting there. He can't do anything. Point I'm making is, all these false gods, they're all going to be in the lake of fire. Or they're all separated from God. And our God is almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful, and his glory will reign forever. And praise God for that. No need of the sun, 
No need of the moon, no need of anything else. Almighty God will illuminate heaven. Its glory will shine through the new Jerusalem. Won't need the sun, the moon, or any created thing. Nothing that, that's in heaven that will be shining will be created. It will be the creator. Right now, we, we go to places that were created by men, and in heaven, everything that glorifies God will be him. Look what it says here in verse 24. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And there shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. When it looks at nations, literally the translation is that there will be people from every nation on the earth. So that means in heaven, there will be people from every nation on the earth. And there should be, because what are we called to do? What's the great commission? To go therefore to all the what? All nations. And to tell people about the love, the grace, and the mercy of God. The new Jerusalem will have inhabitants from every nation. And again, that's possible because the gospel will reach the world. Verse 27, but there shall be by no means enter anything that defiles or causing an abomination, or a lie, but only the, those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So there will be no sin in heaven, there'll be no abomination in heaven, there'll be no lies in heaven, only the truth, because Jesus is the truth and Satan is the father of lies. And who gets to enter into heaven? Those whose names are written where? The book of life. So how is your name written in the book of life? The Bible tells us, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. On the contrary to that, it says in 1 Corinthians, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. How many of you, that first list, you qualify for at least one of those? Hands on up, you're prideful and lying, so you're on there. But aren't you glad the sentence doesn't end and it goes, and uh, none of those will enter the kingdom of God? But then it says, such as were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord and by the Spirit of God. The real issue isn't what you have done, but whether or not you've allowed God to redeem you, to rescue you. When you open your heart to Jesus, he takes all the bad things and washes them away, and he helps give you a new start. He writes your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. If you're here this morning, you've never given your life to Jesus, I pray that today's the day of salvation. Again, it's not just believing that Jesus exists, that demons believe and tremble. Not just acknowledging his existence, that's not enough. Really, it's placing faith in him. It's repenting from the person that you were apart from him. Repent, as I say every week, it's, it's to turn, it's a change of mind, it's a change of heart. Yeah, I was on that list that the adulterers and the fornicators and the liars, I was in that list, and then I recognized I'm a sinner, and conviction came by the Holy Spirit, and my heart was to repent, to turn around and surrender my life to the Lord, to change my mind, to change my heart. And when you do that, if you come humbly and broken before him, and more than just praying a prayer of words, it's not a magic prayer that we pray, right? 
What we're doing is fully surrendering our life to the Lord. If we're sincere about our sin, if we're sincere about the fact that we recognize we need to be forgiven, when we cry out to him, when we confess him as Lord, we will be saved. Our name will be written in the Lamb's book of life. And when you approach that pearly gate one day, that gate will be open to you. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you for your word. We thank you for this glimpse into heaven. We know we cannot even begin to do it justice. But Lord, we long for the day when we will be in heaven forevermore, when we will see you face to face, when we'll never have to leave those that we love, that we'll all be gathered together for all eternity in a place where there's no sorrow, no suffering, and no pain. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. Everyone who's here we know is brought by divine appointment. And maybe you've gone to church a lot, but you've never surrendered your life to the Lord. If that's you this morning, I'm going to ask you to just do something in a moment. The Bible says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. This is your opportunity to confess him openly. I'm not asking you to join a church, but just to recognize, say, yes, I want to give my life to the Lord. Guys, if we can't confess him in here, we won't live for him out there. And so if that's your heart, if that's your desire, I just want you to raise your hand and I'll pray with you. And again, even if you pray this prayer, if your heart's not sincere, if you're not truly repented, it won't mean anything. But if that is your, truly your heart, the Lord's ministered to you by his Holy Spirit this morning. I just want you to raise your hand right where you are so I can pray with you. Anybody at all? You want to know for sure you're going to heaven. You're a new creation in Christ. You've been forgiven. Believers, pray for anybody here that doesn't know the Lord. Anyone at all. Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. We thank you for this picture of heaven. Lord, we cannot wait to be in your presence where your glory outshines the sun because there is no sun. Lord, we ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said...